Hey everyone, and welcome back to Wild Connection, the podcast. I mentioned in last week's podcast that I'm going to the COP26, the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, Scotland next month. Whether we believe it or not, agree on the cause or not, we've all pretty much heard that there's a climate crisis. What you may not have heard about is the biodiversity crisis. That's probably because it's all knotted up with the looming climate change crisis. However, I want to suggest that the biodiversity crisis is already here. It's not coming in the future. Okay, I don't suggest it. Scientists generally have been sounding the alarm on this for a while now. We tend to do that. Last week, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service released the list of 23 extinct species in the United States. And for a minute, it was all everyone talked about. Since I will be reporting back from the front lines of the climate conference, I thought it was important to spend one episode acknowledging the biodiversity crisis, why it's happening, and paying respects to species that we have lost. That's today's episode. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. Okay, let's get started. It might be helpful to first figure out just what is biodiversity? Well, bio is short for biological, which encompasses all living things, and diversity is all the different kinds of living things. Simply put, biodiversity includes all the species we know exist, plus all the species we think exist. Every living thing, from humans to microbes, fungi, and invertebrates. Scientists have identified 1.2 million species for sure, 1,244,360 to be exact. And it's estimated that there are over 8.7 million total. That means we know nothing about over 80% of all the living creatures on this beautiful planet. Of the known species, 1.05 million are insects, 141,326 are fungi and protists. This may not sound very exciting, but many fungi are needed by plants and they contribute heavily to the recycling of nutrients. So let's have some respect for the fungi. There are 110,615 arachnids. This includes spiders, scorpions, ticks, mites, harvestmen, and something called solifuges also known as sun spiders, wind scorpions, or camel spiders. And, as of 2019, the horseshoe crab. There are 80,460 mollusks minus eight, but I'll get to that a little bit later. There are 80,122 crustaceans, 35,672 fishes minus two, and 11,341 reptiles, 11,158 birds, minus 
a few, 8,250 amphibians, 6,485 mammals, we belong to this group, and 2,175 corals. Now, you might be thinking, whew, 1.2 million, possibly 8.7 million, that's a lot. Where exactly is the crisis? It doesn't seem like we're going to run out of insects anytime soon. What's the big deal? Well, let's look at insects. And we can see that there is a big deal going on right now. This group has over 1 million described species. You might be thinking, surely we could stand to lose a few. Well, we've lost more than a few. In Germany alone, the insect population across species has dropped by over 45%. The butterflies are vanishing from the UK. The reasons? Habitat destruction, deforestation, fragmentation. This is when we break up habitat and butterflies, you know, they can fly pretty far. Just look at the monarch butterfly, but not all of them typically travel that far and they can get stuck in between spaces. Then there's urbanization and agriculture. These are the biggest deals. Temperature is just going to make things worse, but it's now affecting them as well. We are in what some scientists describe as the insect apocalypse. That sounds pretty dramatic, and it is. And it's not being overwhelmed with insects. It's the opposite. The reason this is a big deal is that insects are the crucial link between other types of animals. And a system is only as strong as its weakest link. Part of that system is us. We need insects for pollination, for protection of our crops, doing the dirty work of recycling poop, making soil, and purifying water. They have a lot of big jobs. For other animals, including birds, insects are a food staple, especially for young birds. The loss of insects equals the loss of birds. This is something we're already seeing. We have lost almost 3 billion individual birds in the past 30 years alone. The glossy black bishop's oo had a very simple two-note song, tuk-tuk, which could be heard from miles away. You may not have heard of this bird. It's extinct. But it did inspire contemporary jazz composer John Zorm. In 2009, he released an album dedicated to this forever gone bird. You can also add to the list the elusive New Caledonian lorikeet. It was last seen in 1987. The glaucous macaw. It was last seen in 1998. And the spix or little blue macaw, which you might remember from the movie Rio. Then there's the cinnamon-colored cryptic tree hunter, last seen in 2007. And its counterpart, the Alagoas foliage gleaner, last seen in 2011. Now, these are the loss of species. Now, just last week, when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service released their list of 23 species that are forever gone, it included the beloved ivory-billed woodpecker. It had finally worked its way through the laborious U.S. system of classifying a species as extinct, and it was officially named extinct. It was last seen and filmed in 1935, and although people swear that it still lives on, there is no concrete evidence. Here is what it sounded like.
You can also check out the show notes to see a video of what it looked like. If you recall from last week's episode with Lee McIntyre, scientists really have a hard time proving a negative, meaning proving that it's not there anymore. So before scientists commit to listing a species as extinct, they turn over every rock or tree, in this case, trying to find evidence that a plant or animal is still among us. The extinctions released just for us last week include 11 birds, eight freshwater mussels, two fish, a bat, and a plant. Yes, plants go extinct too. About half of the species in this list were already considered extinct by the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the global authority on the status of plants and animals. Some birders were downright pissed that scientists had given up on the marvelous, extinct ivory-billed woodpecker. The thing is, the time for outrage, my friends, was decades ago. That's the trouble with extinction. Your outrage doesn't mean anything now. The declaration was made on the best available science. That means data. In theory, there is still time to challenge this. There is always a public comment period, and the task of the public isn't to say, no way, it's not gone, it can't be. It's to say, hey, here's some data, concrete evidence that it's still with us. The Bachman's warbler, a yellow-breasted songbird that once made the long journey between the southeastern United States and Cuba, is also on that list. You might say, well, that's not very much. But remember, it took almost 70 years to officially name the ivory-billed woodpecker extinct That means there's a really big time lag from the time an animal or plant is gone and the time that we, the public, get the official announcement. It doesn't take nearly that long for other species. For example, the northern white rhino, everybody knew when it made the list. In fact, this episode's artwork by the amazing Chris Huka is inspired by the now extinct northern white rhino. You can find links to her artwork on the show notes. To be clear, this species was already what we call functionally extinct, which means the population is no longer viable. Sudan was the last remaining male, and he lived in a zoo. He died in 2018, leaving two elderly females as the last two individuals of the species. At the time, there seemed to be collective grief. But do you really find this tragic? If so, what action have you taken because the remaining four species of rhino are critically endangered. This would include the southern white rhino, the black rhino, the java, and the Sumatran rhino. So what will you do? What are you willing to do? If the past informs the present, the answer is not much. I mentioned that there were 80,460 mollusks. Well, we can knock off eight. Freshwater mussels belong to this group. And they are one of the most imperiled groups of mollusks in North America. Why did these eight species finally make the extinction list? Probably due to development and pollution. And eventually, temperature will take care of the rest. In fact, this past summer, off the coast of British Columbia, billions of marine organisms boiled to death in the heat wave that hit the region. Freshwater mussels are also an important food source for many birds, and the mussels themselves rely on fish to help spread their babies. Maybe the fish that they relied on disappeared. We don't know yet. 
What we do know is that the oceans are losing fish because of our insatiable appetites, and ultimately, the changing temperature will deal the final blow. If we can't save a rhino, there's virtually no hope for a mussel. After all, they're not really big and charismatic. And what about plants? There was a plant on the list. That's because plants go extinct also. But think about this. About 15,000 medicinal plant species are threatened with extinction around the world. Many of our medicines come from plants. And experts estimate that the earth is losing at least one potential major drug every two years. I realize that this is all sounding very doom and gloom. And that usually shuts people down and they tune out. Because what are you supposed to do about it? Well, first let me give you a little bright spot. And then I'll tell you some things you can do about it. Extinction can be overturned when we do see an individual from a species that was long thought to be extinct. They went undetected for decades. Despite our incessant crawling consumption of the planet, they managed to eke out a small place to survive. One example is the New Guinean Highland dog. It's an ancient species that is closely related to the Australian dingo. After not being spotted for 50 years, it was concluded that they were extinct. And then, just when we least expected it, a population was discovered in a remote region of New Guinea in 2016. It was confirmed they were not extinct. But here's the bad news. They'll probably end up extinct. Let's think about this. When it comes to a dog species, how is that possible? I mean, many people assert how much they love dogs, but do they really? Wolves are the ancestors of our precious dogs, and we successfully brought them back after relentless persecution, torture, and suffering, only to start shooting them all over again, destroying their families, shattering their lives, and dismantling their right to live, which they do with more cooperation and compassion than many humans on this planet. And that doesn't even include the sheer scale of the maiming and abuse hurled at coyotes and foxes. That's the reality and the truth of how much we love dogs. A United Nations report estimates that over 1 million species, that's basically all of the described species, are at risk for extinction in the next few decades. Humanity is failing. When you ask people if they like animals, a lot of them say, ooh, I love animals. Heck, most of the students in my classes say how much they love animals. However, much like our famous love of dogs, when we look at how we act, I don't think we love animals very much at all. It is the ultimate abusive relationship. And in this scenario, we are the abusers. A common theme in abusive relationships is that while the abuser is being abusive, they keep asserting how much they love you. That's our relationship, our real relationship with other animals. We can change it though. We created it and we can undo it. The question is how? Well, the first thing is to become aware of the contradictions in your behavior. A recent book called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World by Henry Mance starts with this premise, the misalignment of what we say and what we do when it comes to other animals. The book had a lot of potential, and I do think, though, it fell short of providing meaningful ways each of us can contribute to the betterment of the lives of other species, and more importantly, demonstrate the love we say we feel for other animals. There were the token big ones. Don't eat meat or fish, shrink your footprint, the standard things we hear. He then did take it a step further. Tell your kids the truth and demand transparency. 
These were the two big ones I was pleased to see. What does it mean to demand transparency? On a global scale, at the largest scale of offense, that means we need to hold corporations, the livestock industry, the agricultural industry, the fishing industry, the oil and gas and coal industry, the timber industry accountable. And we can't do that if there isn't transparency, because that means we don't know who's culpable. There's a famous experiment that if you want people to follow the honor system, whether it's returning a borrowed book or paying for a product or service, all you need is a photo of a pair of eyes. Basically, being watched makes us behave better. This is because we're a social species and our standing and reputation matters. We don't want people to know we're cheating. And if we think we're being watched, we cheat less. This works individually and it works collectively. Transparency means you can know what behaviors your money is supporting. Another thing Mance says is that you don't have to love other animals to treat them ethically and with respect. The same is true for other people, by the way. This idea of respecting nature and all the other animals that are out there just trying to make a living too is not only about conservation. It's about social justice for your fellow humans that depend on these resources for life. There are a whole host of things that Mance didn't include, however, that create an opportunity for everyone that says they love animals to act that way. After all, love is a verb. And it may be too overwhelming for you to think about, I got to give up meat. I got to give up dairy. I got to give up fish. I got to shrink my footprint. I have to do all these things. And it's not going to make any material difference to another living thing. Okay, well, let's take the backyard bird lover. Many put out seeds and nest boxes to attract the birds to their sterile monoculture yards with HOA required grass. Their love of animals is so deep that they find ways to punish, torture, and kill other animals that may want some of those seeds too. They create rules about which animals are allowed and which ones are not. Many homeowners say that they love animals, but they put weed killer out all over their lawns. They pull up dandelions, which are super useful plants for bumblebees. They trap and kill voles and other rodents that dig burrows. This, instead of feeling honored that another species thought the habitat you have, despite its monoculture appearance, is a good place and a safe place to take up residence or to stay, because I promise you, they were there first. But if we're willing to steal the land of indigenous peoples, who cares about a vole? That's the extent of our love. What can you do instead? If you're fortunate enough to own a home and belong to an HOA, get on the HOA board and overturn these silly monoculture grass rules. Plant a front yard or backyard National Wildlife Certified Habitat. This will bring birds, butterflies, bumblebees, and other critters offering them a home. Stop arbitrating who gets seeds. You shouldn't be feeding wildlife anyway. And if you do, don't be a jerk about it and do some research on what's safe and what's harmful. So many of us love animals to death. And that's just in your yard or your apartment balcony. And to ensure that this is not just for the privileged, if you are fortunate enough to be able to plant such a garden, take some cuttings from your yard, get them going, and then donate them to help others who may not be able to afford landscaping or buy plants at nurseries. It's really expensive. And listen, donating to World Wildlife Fund or any of these big conservation organizations that are buying up and conserving land, that's great. But you can also find out what species are in trouble where you live and why, and then figure out if there's something you can do locally 
to take care of the animals that live in your neighborhood. And I'm not talking about feeding them. But for example, I was living in North Carolina, and some of you may have heard me tell this story. I was following the life of this beaver that was putting together its winter storage, uh, right? So it had a dam uh, that it had built, a little lodge, and it was collecting, like they do before winter, um, food and, and storing it. And they rely on this food to take them through the winter. And this was in a very wealthy, affluent neighborhood that I like to go walking in because it has a lot of trees. And that's something that is common in affluent neighborhoods, lots of trees. Apparently, a landscaping company, which would come regularly to do maintenance, decided that this bundle of branches and leaves was clogging up a little waterway and removed all of it. I was devastated for the beaver. All of her hard work, it turned out to be a female, all of her effort just dismantled in a matter of seconds by people who decide what nature should look like. In the end, she moved across the street to start all over again, but that brought her perilously close to the highway. And it wasn't long, about two weeks before she was run over. At that point, I was devastated because there was no reason for this. As a tribute to her, I took her body and buried her close to where she lived. So the point of that story is that manicured perfect nature is killing animals. And our aesthetic of what we think looks good is killing animals. When it comes to birds, there's an even more horrific story of how much we love animals. So I was recently in Iceland, and a lot of people go to Iceland for the birds, especially when they're breeding. There are hundreds of thousands of breeding birds. Some of them are true card-carrying members of the pelagic seabird family, like puffins and fulmars, and people will flock, no pun intended, to go see puffins. And nearby are the fulmars. Now, the fulmars are just as fascinating, but they have an interesting problem. The babies get fattened up by their parents, working really hard to feed them. And then when they're ready to leave the nest, they basically, they can't fly yet and they can't walk because the muscles in their legs aren't very well developed. And they, they're not great walkers anyway, but they can't walk at all at this point. So they leave the nest and their whole purpose is to try to coast to either a river or the ocean. In fact, there's an Icelandic um, story that in order to succeed, a young fulmar must see the ocean in order to, to find it. And if they end up in a field, uh, they, they won't find the ocean. Well, a lot of fulmars end up, a lot of baby fulmars, because they're still babies, leave the nest and they don't end up at the ocean at all. They end up on the pavement because it looks like water to a bird. When they end up on the pavement, they can't fly. They can't stand up and they can't move. And what I saw was horrifying. Vehicles running over innocent baby fulmars that look like full-grown birds, just staring innocently as the cars come hurtling at them. There is no traffic in Iceland. There is no reason to run over a bird. I'm guessing it's just too inconvenient to slow down and go around them. The carcass, the bloody carcasses of hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands 
of innocent fulmars that were incapable of moving out of the way were run over alive by cars. All of the effort that their parents had put in to raise them, all the work they had done, trashed because you just got to get somewhere faster. I'm hoping that I can convince the Icelandic government to start putting up signs because if you love birds and you go to Iceland to see birds, there's no reason you should be running over a bird to get there. If you don't have time to volunteer or create a backyard habitat, find a cause that does matter to you and do something positive. Be an agent of change. Loving anyone, human or non-human, means having their best interest at heart, having compassion, showing kindness and respect, and helping them when they need you, and caring enough about their needs that you make space for their experience, giving them the right of autonomy and independence to pursue their lives free from suffering you cause. How well are you loving other animals? There's another piece that I want to expand on in another podcast, and that's interacting with other animals with consent. It's a big one, and I want to tackle it along with independence because I see this a lot. I see a lack of respect and consent when other people are interacting with other animals. Let's be clear. Having consent to touch someone or be physically close is something all living things have a right to. And when we experience someone violating our consent to be in close proximity or touch us, it creates fear, stress, anguish, and pain. It's violence, pure and simple. So please express the love you feel for other animals in nature. They need us. Just make sure you express it in a positive way and don't support, condone, or engage in behaviors that violate their freedoms and autonomy that result in their physical molestation or lead to their suffering, persecution, torment, or abuse. That is the minimum loving thing we can all do. That's the show, everyone. And if you are enjoying it, please join the growing Wild Connection podcast community and subscribe. You can follow the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and share it with others and leave a review. That's one way to help others find it. You can follow us on Twitter at WildConnectPod, and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at RealDrJen. There's also a YouTube channel where you can find a range of videos, some of them tied to the podcast, and more are on the way. So subscribe to Wild Connection TV also. Thanks for listening.